Now, if you'll please stand and we'll read our passage of Scripture for our sermon this morning. We are in Acts chapter 6. We'll read the entire chapter of Acts 6. Hear God's Word. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. This is the the word of the Lord, and all God's people said. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Booth opened up for us Acts chapter 2 because it was, of course, Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is the celebration of God giving the gift of the Holy Spirit to his church. It comes upon the disciples there in Acts chapter 2 as fire coming down on the heads of the disciples. And they spoke in foreign languages. And Pastor Booth reminded us that that was sort of a reversal of the things that took place in the Tower of Babel, where the languages were confused Now there's at least a beginning of us having the same lip, the same confession, being able to speak the same language, even though individually we might speak different languages across the world. Christians have the same faith and can communicate in meaningful ways. Today in Acts chapter 6, what I'd like to open up for you this morning is a continuation of that same story. In fact, the whole book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit in the church. The Holy Spirit, as He is working through the church to take over the world, to turn the world upside down, or as Pastor Booth said, to turn it right side up. 
The Spirit in chapters 2 was poured out onto the disciples. Fire comes down onto their heads. They speak these foreign languages that all the, the, the Jews who have gathered together from all different parts of the empire can now hear the Word of God explained to them in their own language. This was, this was something that was revolutionary for them. How are these men able to speak my language? I want you to think about that, the, the Spirit being poured out, the Spirit rushing upon to the church like water being poured out. The Spirit poured out. It's a, it's a baptism of fire, right? That's what, that's what Jesus promised. He would baptize them. John promised that Jesus would do this, John the Baptist, that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. That's what that was. It's like he rushes upon the apostles, this fire coming down. It's helpful for us to, uh, to get a, a better perspective of what that looks like and what that means. If we think through the Old Testament, if you think through characters in the Old Testament, and you could probably think of a few who receive the Holy Spirit in this way where the Spirit rushes upon them and then things happen. Probably the best example or the easiest one to think of is Samson. Samson in Judges chapter 13 and 14, the Spirit rushes onto him. And you'll notice when that happens with Samson that things happen. And just like in the New Testament in Acts, the Spirit coming onto the church, things happen. And I'll give you a rundown of the the previous chapters here in just a minute. But the things that happen uh, are not necessarily pleasant things. People get hurt when Samson has the Spirit rush upon him. Things get disrupted when the Spirit rushes upon him. And they're not necessarily things that you would expect or even want in your life. The first time the Spirit rushes upon Samson... uh, God, well, actually, let's turn there. Look at um, Judges chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, it says, uh, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him, that is Samson, at Mahane, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael. So the Spirit is moving upon Samson. What does he do? Now Samson went down to Timnah, this is the beginning of chapter 14, and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. And then then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all um, all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. What is going on? Why would God do this? This is, it it says there further in verse 4, but his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord. This is from Yahweh. God is doing this. The Spirit has moved upon. Samson has rushed upon him. And the first thing that God wants him to do is to go marry a Philistine. This is not something we want. You're supposed to marry somebody in Israel. What, What is going on here, Samson? So similarly... When the Spirit rushes upon the church in the New Testament, things happen that we don't expect. Things happen that we don't necessarily want to happen. God disrupts the lives of His people. Why would He do this? Why does He make these seemingly random things happen in our lives? The Spirit does that, as you might gather, even now. God does this now in our lives. In Acts chapter 6, I think, lays out for us a picture of what that looks like. Think about your own circumstance. 
You want things to go in a certain way. Make these plans. This is what's going to happen in my life. I'm going I'm to do A, B, and C. This is the way things should go. This is my plan. And uh, hardly ever do your plans turn out the way you actually want them to. God brings things into your life that are often unpleasant. Sometimes there are pleasant things that come into your life. We like to call those blessings, but actually all of them are blessings. God disrupts your plans. Why does he do that? Well, here's the point of the sermon. This is all the introduction, by the way. Now, now uh, this, uh, my sermon has a point. You'll be glad to know. Here it is. God disrupts our lives so that we, as the church, can disrupt the world. God disrupts our lives so that the church can disrupt the world. And I mean that in a good way. So now let's get into this chapter, chapter 6 of Acts, and see how that idea is opened up for us. So the chapter very nicely divides into two sections. There's section 1, which is verses 1 through 7, which is this, uh, these internal needs that the church has. So my first main heading is the internal needs, if you're taking notes, point 1, internal needs. And then the second part of the chapter, verses 8 through 15, is the external effects, what happens when those needs in the church are met by God's people, and then things begin to happen throughout the world. So let's let's look at these internal needs first, verses 1 through 7. There are two needs that show up right away in the church. And actually, the chapter starts out very nicely, doesn't it? If you look at verse 1, it says, Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, yes, I like that part, the church is growing. And having been the pastor of a very small church, that's where I want to be. I want to see my church growing. You know, I'm tired of these same 20 people showing up. I want 70 people to come. I want the church to grow. And seeing this was encouraging. It's thinking, yes, God makes his church grow. It's his timing. God makes his church grow. But then as soon as those really nice words come out, we run into trouble, right? Well, let's just kind of review what's been happening so far. The church, the disciples are multiplying. The Spirit has been active, right? Think of what happened in chapter 2. The Spirit is poured out. Peter gives this sermon where he's accusing the Israelites. You killed the one who is the author of life, and you wanted a murderer to be delivered in his place. You did this, you did this, you did this. And they were cut to the heart. And they said, what what do we do? What must we do? And Peter gives them the good news. Repent and be baptized. Your sins can be forgiven. Now in chapter 3, we're shown in chapter 3 that the name of Jesus Christ is with the apostles. He is with the church. The Spirit's poured out on the church. The name of Christ is in the church. And so when Peter and John go into the temple, remember chapter 3? They go to the beautiful gate of the temple, and there's this very unbeautiful scene there of a man who is lame and crippled, begging. And Peter and John go to that beautiful gate. Uh, I love the contrast of the the name of the beautiful gate and the ugliness of the man there, unable to walk. And the picture that this temple He's been there all this time. He's over 40 years old. He's been there for so long, and the temple has not healed him. The priests have not 
healed him. And here come Peter and John. And they look intently at him. They say, look at us. Look to us. Don't look to this temple. Look to us. This temple has gold and silver. We don't have gold and silver. But what we do have is the name. And in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up. And he stands up and he's leaping and jumping and goes into the temple. The Spirit is the one who, ha- who, who gives this man healing. It is the church who has the name of Christ written upon it that gives this man healing. And in chapter 4, the Sanhedrin uh, brings Peter and John before, before them and they say, well, why, you may not speak in this name anymore. And Peter and John are like, well, you guys don't have any power anymore. You don't have the name of God with you anymore. You don't have the Spirit with you anymore. And so your words are now just the words of men. So what do you think? Should we obey the words of men or should we obey God? The Spirit is active in them. In chapter 5, we learn the Spirit is really there. He is there and you can't lie to him. Ananias and Sapphira bring what they claim to be the total amount of funds that they've gathered from the sale of their field and they lie to the Holy Spirit. And they pay the ultimate consequence for that. Pardon me. You don't lie to the Spirit. And now in chapter 6, we have this multitude in Jerusalem. And as I said, as soon as this good news comes of the the disciples multiplying, before verse 1 even finishes, there's a complaint. There's a complaint against, it says in mind, the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. This is from God, as we'll see. And all of us know this kind of experience, right? As soon as you think something good is happening in your life, things fall apart. Uh, the CEO of eTech, where I work, Matt Rocco, he likes to say this. He, he contacts us regularly and sends us messages as leaders at eTech. And he has this saying. He says, you're either, you're, you're in, there are only three stations in your life that you're ever in. You're either in the midst of a crisis, you're just coming out of a crisis, or you're just about to go into one. That's your whole life. Those are your only three places you can be. So what is this crisis that the apostles have in their church now? Well, these widows, as it's said here, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. um, uh, Just a note about that before before I explain what that means. Uh, We tend to think of this as, well, there's these Jewish women and then there are these Gentile women and they're not getting along. That's not what's going on here. Because the Gentiles will be included, but that's not really opened up until Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and the, the sail that... Peter sees coming out of the sky with all the shellfish on it, and he's told to, you know, make some shrimp scampi, and he's horrified about that. Um, but before that, this is, this is all a Jewish group here that's gathered together, primarily a Jewish group. So these women, remember why they're there. They've gathered together to celebrate Pentecost from all different parts of the empire. The Jewish people have come from their homelands to this place in Jerusalem to hear the word of God. They speak different languages. That's the issue. It's a language issue. It's not a race issue. The crisis is not about race. It's about language. Some of them are Greek-speaking widows. Others are Aramaic-speaking. The ones who speak Greek are left out. This is sort of the the remains of the effects of the Tower of Babel playing themselves out in the church here. 
which has to be overcome in this very special way. And the challenge is because of this amazing growth that is taking place. So that's the need, the first need. The second need is from the apostles themselves. They have a need. Look at verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They are busy. Not desirable is the language it uses there. They, they can't do everything. They have a lot on their plates and they can't do it all. So what are the apostles doing that they're so busy that they can't take care of the people in their church? This should be the perfect church, right? It's the apostles' church. <laughs> But there are problems even there. I think what, what would help us to understand what's happening here is to understand another passage in the Old Testament, and that is Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, uh, we have a very similar circumstance. In fact, Acts chapter 6 is the fulfillment of what took place in Numbers chapter 11. If you remember that story, uh, Moses was overwhelmed. He was unable to uh, care for all the people who were, who were uh, in, the, in the camp. And so God gives him a solution to it. Um, in verse 16 and 17 of Numbers 11, it says this, So Yahweh said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. The same is happening with the apostles in Acts 6. And then in verses 24 and following in, uh, in Numbers 11, it says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. And then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and took of the spirit that was upon him, and placed the same upon the seventy elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. And then it goes into there were there were two others. Uh, I'll, I'll continue reading. But the two men, uh, but two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and told, the, told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. And then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all Yahweh's people were prophets, and that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, and he and the elders, both he and the elders of Israel. So in that story, you have Moses, who is busy. And in this story, we have the apostles, who are busy. So what was Moses doing? Well, that, that gives us an insight into what the apostles are doing here. What is, what is Moses' relationship to the Word? It's the same relationship that the apostles had to the Word. Was Moses reading the Bible over and over again? No, he was writing it. <laughs> the first five books of the Pentateuch are the ones that he wrote. The apostles have the Old Testament, but they can see 
they know that something is about to happen. They know that persecution is about to break out. They can see the events that are happening around them, that there is increasing opposition to what the church is doing from the Jews. They know that their days are limited for this time for them to be gathered together. So they are writing Scripture. Most likely, they're writing the book of Matthew together. The 70 elders, of course, are, they correspond to the seven deacons. So when, there's, when it says that the, the, in verse 4 of, of Acts chapter 6, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, we shouldn't think of, well, the pastor locked away in his study just reading his books all the time, although there's a little bit of that happening. They're definitely praying and reading Scripture and teaching the Bible to the people. But their main focus is to write Scripture. It is not that the apostles are above serving tables. They have a role. <clears throat> Their role is like the role Moses had. Writing of Scripture is for them a group effort. The apostles are gathered together, and Scripture writing is not something that's simple. You can't just sit down and scribble out, oh, this is the book of Matthew, here's, here's what happened with Jesus, we'll just write this down real quick, and then let's just distribute it. No, there's a lot of planning that goes into the writing of Scripture. You need to know the Old Testament very well, pretty exhaustively. These, these apostles needed to be in constant prayer because the Spirit is working through them to write Scripture. It takes careful planning. They understood their role, and they needed help like Moses did. And so what's the solution to these needs? Actually, both of those needs, the needs of the widows who are being neglected and the needs of the apostles to have help, are met with seven chosen men. I'm still in the first part, by the way. We're still in that first, uh, the internal needs of the church. The seven men are chosen. All of the seven men are named here in this passage. Uh, so the saying pleased the people, and they choose Stephen, and then Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Tamon, and Parm Parmenes, and, and Nicon uh, you know, the rest of these guys. Two of these men are very notable. They show up again in the book of Acts. and Actually, in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen stoned to death. And Philip shows up a little bit later in Acts chapter 8. In verse 6, we're told that the apostles laid their hands on them. When they set them, they, whom they, they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Laying hands on somebody, if you think about this, uh, this is, again, imagery from the Old Testament. What, what did people lay hands on in the Old Testament? Well, it was sacrifices. When you bring your sacrificial animal to the priest, you lean your hands on this animal because this animal now represents you to go in to be sacrificed and to be burned up, to go up in smoke, up into the presence of God, uh, representing you. And so when these men have, their, have hands laid upon them, it is as though they are being prepared to go into a kind of sacrificial place in their lives. And that's still the case. Pastors, when, you're, when, when a pastor is ordained, the elders come forward, they lay their hands on him because this man, in some way, is going to be a sacrifice for his church. It's a scary thing becoming a pastor. It's even scarier going through that uh, experience. So these men are now ready. 
the result we find in verse 7. The word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now I want you to notice here that verse 1 and verse 7 have very similar language. The number of disciples is multiplying in verse 1, and in 7 the same thing's happening. So those are bookends. This is like a chiasm uh, here. There's a chiastic structure to those verses. And right in the middle is that the apostles are given to the word of God and to prayer. So let me ask you this. What is God bringing into your life individually? What is he doing in your life that seems weird or uncomfortable? That's the very thing that God is using to do something in your life to bring about some good that you can't even see yet. It's unexpected and it's painful. Why does God do that? I don't know. I don't know. And you're not going to know either. And it's not, I, don't, I don't mean this as a platitude at all. But your job through those suffering times is to keep the faith and trust him. Because what will happen is going to surprise you like you couldn't have imagined. You might not even see it in this life. Think of Stephen. Stephen, as we're about to see, is dragged before the council and he's killed. What a waste, right? As soon as he gets out onto the stage, he's murdered. What a waste. Was it a waste? We still talk about Stephen. We celebrate his name. The day after Christmas is the feast of Stephen. We have a song about it. Good King Wenceslas went out on the feast of Stephen when the snow was all around. That, that, that took place on that day. That feast day celebrates Stephen who gave himself for the church. God might be calling you to something like that. Your life is not a waste. The lives of those who suffer greatly are not wasted because God remembers them. And all I can say right now is that you will see. So that's the first part of this. Let's go into the second part, the external effects now. The internal needs have been dealt with. Now let's see the external effects in verses 8 through 15. Stephen is full of faith and power. He does great wonders and signs among the people. There are three key words that are peppered throughout this little section here. Wisdom, power, spirit. Stephen is working in the power and wisdom in the spirit. And I want you to notice a few things about these deacons that are placed out there. First, they're not what we think of as modern deacons. We have an office of deacon. These are the guys who make sure that we get our, our bread and wine. They're, they make sure they, they clean the, the room before the next worship service. They make sure that uh, people are taken care of physically. That's not what these men are. That doesn't mean that our office of deacon is illegitimate. It just means it doesn't, it's not proved from this passage. Second thing I want you to notice is that it's not so much these men that are active, but rather it is the Spirit who is working through them. The wisdom of God in verses 9 and 10 cannot 
be overcome by the wisdom of the men of this particular synagogue. So I think one, we're, we're tempted here to think, well, that means I should just go out and try to debate a bunch of atheists and try to win them over. Not necessarily. You're not necessarily called to that. There are certain men who are called to that, but not all of us have that responsibility. What that means for us is that not that we go out and debate and try to defeat arguments and things like this. We, we have a much simpler task, and that is joyful living and humble obedience. If you can do that, that's where our calling is. And then what do you do if you fall into sin through that joyful living and humble obedience? Well, there's there is forgiveness. There are things that you can do turning away from sin, finding help, and coming to the church and finding that, that place where you can be restored. And that does happen. So then these men, uh, Tim, uh, Stephen in particular, is brought up on false charges. False accusations are brought against him. Verse 11, they secretly induced men to say, we heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stir up the people and the elders and the scribes. The point here is that those who hate God also hate his people. They are going to cheat. They are going to bring false accusations. They're going to try to paint a picture of you, which is a false picture, and tell you that this is what you believe. Stephen is brought up on charges of blasphemy in verses 13 and 14 speaks blasphemous words. So they ultimately have four accusations against him, right? He's against Moses. He's against God. He's against the law. And he's against the temple. Four accusations. And actually, if you read through chapter 7, he goes through each of those four accusations and shows them that, no, actually, you're the ones who have been guilty of all four of these things all through your history. (laughs) So how should we respond in the face of those false accusations? What should we do? Well, here's what Stephen did. Look at verse 15. I I love this. This this verse is so weird. All those sat in the council, they looked steadfastly at him and saw his face as the face of an angel. What does that mean? When we tell our children, you've got the face of an angel, it generally means that they have a nice smile. So that's the picture that people read this with. They, they see Stephen had the face of an angel, so that means he was standing there going like this. <laughs> that's not the face of an angel. Think through the Bible. What, what do people... What are people's reactions when they see angels? You know this. The angels always have to say, don't be afraid. (laughs) Because angels are terrifying. I don't know what his facial expression was. But I do know that when these people looked at him, they were afraid. Because they knew that what they were saying was false. So when people bring false accusations against us, what should our reaction be? We know what the truth is. They do too. Be ready for when they acknowledge it and turn away. So bringing this all together here, chapter 6, we have 
these internal needs and then the external effects are opened up for us, God disrupting the lives of the church so that the church can then disrupt the world. What, is that, what does that mean for us? Well, first, I, I want you to think, to, to remember and, and to be aware that the church, the, sorry, the Spirit is still active. He is active among us always. When the church speaks, it is as the Holy Spirit speaking. He brings, God brings things, separately, God brings things into your life that are hard. Life is not always hard. There are those times when you are coming out of a crisis. There are times before you're going into a crisis. What are you doing with those times? How are you making yourself ready for that time of crisis? What are you preparing for? God's going to surprise you no matter what. But if you have built up faith, you have a place to go when the crisis hits. Are you getting yourself ready? He is working to change you, and through us, he's working to change the world. Another question I have, is the church ready? Is the the church capable of stirring up the world, of disrupting the world? Or will we just capitulate to what the world wants? We often have choices to make. What's the choice we'll make? I trust that you will seek out the Lord and continue to have faith in him and walk with him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're so grateful for the scriptures, for how you have opened up to us what you are doing through history in the Bible. And I pray that you would continue to give us greater faith. Help us to continue to grow as your children and not to lose heart through the face of difficulties. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians, what do you believe? Maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, 
And we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Amen. You may be seated. As we come now to the Lord's Supper, the Lord does feed His people. And this is one of the primary ways that the Spirit is active among us. He is building us up. He is giving us the strength that we need in order to go through our lives and enter into those trials and difficulties that will face us all the time, that will disrupt our lives. This is your anchor. This is the place to hold on to this meal, this feast with the Lord. So having said that, let's now feast. Will the deacons please come forward? Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you. Let's give thanks. Our Lord God in heaven, we are so grateful that you have provided this meal for us. Thank you for this bread, which is the body of Christ, come down from heaven to strengthen us for the tasks that are ahead of us. We give you thanks because you have provided this great gift for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
If anyone has not been served, please uh, raise your hand. Okay, great. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is for you, do this as my memorial. Let's give thanks for the cup. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the victory that comes in the form of wine. As Jesus' blood is poured out for us, and we now get to enjoy your presence with your spirit, we pray that you would please um, be with us through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same manner, our Savior took the cup, and having given thanks as we have done, he gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, have given this cup to you. Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. Our Lord God in heaven, as we have now been in your presence, we are so grateful for the privilege of going out into the world. We pray that you would please guide us, strengthen us, and prepare us for the tasks that are ahead of us. Please be merciful to us and gentle with us as we do that. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now receive God's blessing on your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom.